really just be to teach the text, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 4. And then we thought it would be necessary, actually, next week, Jake's just going to give a more um, overall conversation about sexuality in the Christian community. And so we've got a heavy topic. Um, pastorally, I do want to say I, I recognize that as we jump into this message and look at this, this passage together, it's, it's very likely that it's going to cause some shame or guilt or regret or sadness or anger or fear. It's, it is emotional, um, and I want to be very, very aware of that. We're also very aware in this, in this gathering, we've got people in all different stages of lives and desires. We've got single people, we've got married people, we've got dating people, uh, we've got engaged people. Uh, we've got people with same-sex attraction, divorced people, all within our context. And so I've I'm, I'm been praying really hard this whole week that we could talk about this subject honestly and, and be faithful to the text, but also care uh, for each other as we look at this. So to that end, that's what I'm going to pray. And if you guys can pray it for me um, as I pray, uh, let's look at this, these verses together. Father, we just ask for your spirit to be very present in a way that Let's us know of your goodness, your mercy, your forgiveness, and even your goodness in giving us instruction that's for our best interest. I just invite you, Holy Spirit, uh, teach us, speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll start just by reading verses 1 and 2. It says, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. As in fact you are living, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know the instruction we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. The very first thing that you see here, and you're gonna, we're gonna try, I'm going to try to remember to point out there's three motives for sexual purity. And the first one is that we can please God. This is the primary one that Paul's going to give. He's going to give some more, but the first is that we can please God. And I want you guys to know that there's a way that we can please God with our physical bodies. Our bodies are instruments, and we can choose to live a life that actually pleases the heart of God. Now, we don't live out this life to try to earn God's favor. We know from looking at the whole book that, that Paul shared the gospel with them. The gospel was that Jesus had died for their sins, that they could have forgiveness of God by faith in Christ alone. That's where God sees us now in Christ as already pleasing to him. Yet simultaneously, we can live in a way that pleases God. If you look at the books that Paul wrote in particular, what he so often does in these books is he'll, he'll kind of front load them with truth, no commandments, nothing at all, just the gospel truths. And then he'll get to a point in the book where he'll pivot and say, now that all these things are true, now live in response to how God has loved you. Live in response to the mercy of God. You're not leaving, living to please him to earn his favor, but you're living to please him because of what he's done for you. Probably most famously in Romans, you can get the whole book of Romans, chapters 1 through 11, hardly any command, just straight doctrine of the gospel. And then you get to chapter 12, where it famously says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. Your bodies can be pleasing when you present them to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So I first want to point out that our bodies can actually please God. And we make that our motive to please God because of how he has loved us. But I also want to point out the second part that I think is really important, is the way to please God requires instruction. Look back at the verses again. It says, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. 
Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know the instructions that we gave you. This is what, what I love. Like, yes, we can please God, but you know what? It, it, it takes some teaching. It takes some inst- instruction. And we know that Paul was actually with the Thessalonians likely for only three weeks or maybe a couple months. If you go back in Acts chapter 17 and read it, remember he was there. There was this great number of people who came to faith and there was persecution and he got kicked out. But imagine Paul with the Thessalonians. Many had just come to faith in Christ and within the three weeks that he's with them, he said, I had already instructed you about your sexuality. Is is sexuality off topic? Is it off limits? No, within the first three weeks of someone coming to Christ, Paul is right there saying, now let me teach you about what this means to the way that we live sexually. I wondered kind of what it was like in the Thessalonian days, so I did just a small amount of research to, to look into what maybe was the practices in that time. I found some quotes that I wanted to read to you that just tell a little bit about the, the climate kind of Roman world outside. It says, it's important to understand that the context of Paul's world, especially in Greco-Roman world outside of Judea and Galilee, for these pagans, sex and marriage was a very strange notion indeed. Oh, sex and marriage only was a very strange notion. Various forms of extramarital union were tolerated. Some were even encouraged. There's this uh, philosopher that the, at the time named Cicero who spent his time in Thessalonica in the mid Uh, century BC. And here's what he said. He said, let not the pleasures be forbidden. Let the desire for pleasure triumph, sometimes over reason, but only if these pleasures do not damage oneself or others. Doesn't sound too much like what we hear today. Just if it feels good, do it. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody, it's okay. One of the other uh, philosophers, Demosthenes, (laughs) considered one of the greatest orators in ancient Greece, he famously said, we have mistress for pleasure, concubines to care for our daily body, bodily needs, and wives to bear us children and to be faithful guardians of our household. In fact, when I was researching it, there was generally four types of sexual relationships that were available and common in that day. One, of course, was husband to wife, but particularly among the men, there were brothels that they could go pay for sex. There was also their concubines. They had slaves that were treated as property, and they could have sex with the slaves any time that they wanted to. And then it was uncommon, not uncommon for them to have mistresses, people that they actually had a relationship and cared with that was just kind of a side relationship. This was the culture of that day, and this is why within three weeks of people coming to Christ, Paul would sit down with them and say, hey, I need to give you some instructions. It's why he would write a letter months later, they think this letter was written, and continue to say, hey, let me give you some further instruction. You think we need the same instruction today? Of course we do. Because to live in a way that our bodies honor God and please God is very contrary to the messages that we hear all around us, from the media, from classrooms, from our friends, even from our parents. Maybe you've heard things like this. Sex is just a physical need, like food or sleep. Sex doesn't hurt anyone. It's okay. If you don't, and there's no consequences. Sex is just a way of expressing love. If you don't have sex until you're married, how are you going to know what you like? There's no way that you can wait until you're married to have sex. That's impossible. If you have same-sex attraction, there's no way that you can stay celibate and not act on it. Pornography doesn't hurt anyone. Pornography is how you actually learn to have sex. Have you heard these things? When I was on campus, I did campus ministry for 21 years, and probably three times over those 21 years, we did this big outreach on campus called The Power of Porn. And one of the things that we did was we would go get kind of the word on the street video where we'd just get a video and we'd go around campus and just walk up to strangers and say, hey, what do you think about porn? 
we'd get them on video and we'd splice this whole thing together and that's how the whole night would start. Just kind of word of the street. What do people really think about it? And it's heartbreaking, the things that you heard. Just complete lies, but this is just what the world believes. And just like Paul had to sit down with the Thessalonians and say, look, this is what's happening in culture, but this is the way we honor God now that you're following Christ. He's writing again to say the same thing. And that's what we're trying to do during these two weeks. Just to say, how do we honor God? How do we live our lives to please God? We do need this instruction. Someone has to teach us. And so we're going to do like Paul did and, and try to teach Midtown Church how to honor God with our sexuality. The other thing that I love about this is he says that they're already doing it. Next thing he says is he says you can learn to please God more and more. Isn't that awesome? I find great comfort in that because it's not like you just have to have it done. He says there's a way to honor God and please God. And then he praises them. He says, you're already doing it. You're already doing it, guys, but I'm urging you to do so more and more. Isn't that great to see the pastoral heart of Paul to, to give people encouragement yet at the same time call them to even more purity? I've been um, a part of the church now for, for three years, been on staff just a couple months. And I can tell you very specifically, within those last couple months, I've heard stories that make me want to say the same thing of Midtown. To say, hey guys, you guys are you're doing well in this area. I'm not going to name names, of course. That would be inappropriate. But I've heard several stories within the last couple months of men who have been completely freed from their pornography addiction. I've heard of relationships where people were living outside of God's will and they've broken off the relationship. I've heard of women confessing things to each other just as men normally do in our accountability groups. I've seen people making progress and making decisions. I've seen several couples fight to stay pure all the way through their long engagements. And when they've pushed the boundaries, they've confessed and brought it before people and repented and, and wanted to continue to grow and honor God with their lives. So I want to say like Paul, like, you guys are doing well. This is what's great. We're doing this already. But I urge you, do so more and more. This is what's great. With that level of victory or ability that we have, we can continue to grow and have more and more and more honoring God with our lives. So what should be more and more common at Midtown Church? People should be getting out of immoral relationships. This should be happening more and more. People should be getting into godly relationships and staying pure. This should happen more and more. We should see more and more freedom from pornography. We should see more and more couples waiting, getting engaged and waiting to have sex until their wedding day. We should see more and more men being open about their struggles with pornography and masturbation. We should see women doing the same. We should see men and women being honest about their same-sex attraction and working with others to live a celibate life and a pure life. These things should happen more and more and more. This is the instruction that we're given. And we can continue to grow as a church and as individuals in this. And finally, in this last part of verse 2, he says, For we know the instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So there's a way to please God. It takes instruction. We can learn to do it more and more. And finally, Paul's reminding him, like he's going to do again later, so I'm going to not talk about it much here, but I'll talk about it later. This is Jesus' authority. Paul's not making this stuff up. You're not choosing whether you want to believe Paul or not. This direction of how we're to live sexually pure lives is from Christ himself. And so we don't say, well, that's just your opinion, or that's your opinion, or this is Midtown Church's opinion. You're going to see later, Paul's going to say, if you just think this is a man's opinion, you're wrong, you're rejecting God. 
if you reject this lifestyle. We'll come to that later because Paul emphasizes it again. But let's get into the main command. The main command here is actually in verse 3. It's God's will that you should be sanctified. It's kind of a big word, right? Sanctified, what, is that? what does that mean? Sanctified is just a word that means holy or set apart. God's will for us in sanctification is that we would live different lives, that we'd be set apart unto God. We said, now that I'm in his kingdom, I'm going to follow his ways and walk with him. We're set apart for God, both for his glory and even for our good. When we set aside our lives to God and we sanctify ourselves, we set ourselves apart to follow him, it's actually for our good. I love when Jesus actually uses this word in one of his last prayers for his disciples. He says, I pray that they would be sanctified. Sanctify them by your truth. But then he says, and I pray that their joy would be made complete. Our sanctification, God's glory, and our joy, our good, go hand in hand. And this is what God wants for us. Scripturally, justification is when you put your faith in Christ, at that very moment, you're made right with God. Right standing, that in God sees now you in Christ. Perfectly justified, made righteous before God. Sanctification, though, is how we walk it out on this earth that we continue to submit our lives and our bodies daily, daily, daily to God. And we continue to grow, and like Paul would say more and more, that we should progressively be growing in our sanctification, becoming more and more holy, more and more set apart, even in our sexuality, more and more holy toward God. That's sanctification, and ultimately there will be glorification. When Christ comes back or he calls us home in an instant, we'll be made like him and never wrestle with sin again. So we find ourselves now in this state between our justification and our glorification, and Paul's command is be sanctified. Live set apart, holy lives unto God and learn to do it more and more. Let's get in now to the meat of what he actually says about sexual immorality. In verse three, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, And in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of his brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. There's three commands here. Avoid sexual immorality. Learn to control your body in a way that's holy and honorable. And no one should wrong or take advantage of his brother or sister. Let's look at those those three. First is just avoid sexual immorality. So the, the question naturally comes, we want to define it, right? Well, what, well, what is sexual immorality? What, what's it out of bounds and what's in bounds? That's the thing we always just want to ask to try to justify ourselves. And it's really pretty simple. I'll steal from Tim Keller and how he writes it. He says, the Christian sex ethic can be summarized like this. Sex is for use within marriage between a man and a woman. Ultimately, that's it. Anything, any sex outside of marriage is what would be called sexual immorality. It's as simple as that, that God has designed sex for marriage. When Adam and Eve were created, when he gave them the covenant of the marriage, it says when they had sex, they became one flesh. This is the scriptural view of sex, that it's so binding that it connects two people into one flesh. Sex in and of itself is an act of marriage. Continuing with what Tim Keller says, he says, in other words, marriage is a union between two people so profound that they virtually become a new single person. The word united, or in other translations, to cleave, means to make a binding covenant or contract. This covenant brings every aspect of two persons' lives together. They essentially merge into a single legal, social, economical unit. They lose much of their independence and means that they donate themselves wholly to the other. 
To call the marriage one flesh then means that sex is understood as both a sign of personal legal union and a means to accomplish it. The Bible says don't unite with anyone physically unless you're also willing to unite with that person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. Don't become physically naked and vulnerable to the other person without becoming vulnerable in every other way because you've given up your freedom and bound yourself to the other in marriage. Guys, God loves marriage. That's why he's so vigilant about protecting it. And he knows that any sexual morality wounds marriages, wounds future marriages. And God can heal all things. He does. And we're going to get there, I promise. But this is the levity that he has. He, he, he loves marriage so much that he's commanding us to live in a way that protects our marriages. So if you want a list, <laughs> what is sexual immorality? Adultery, premarital sex, cohabitation, homosexual sex, prostitution, pornography, masturbation, even lust. As Jesus said, to look at a woman lustfully is to commit adultery in your heart. And this is a simple command, avoid it. What does that mean? It means avoid it. It means run, go the other direction, do whatever you can within your means to stop and to get away from it. When Paul would write his favorite disciple, Timothy, he wrote him in, in chapter two of, of 2 Timothy, flee immorality, flee, run, get away. Jesus would say, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. That's the type of conviction that we're supposed to live in, that we remove all stumbling blocks. So what does it mean practically? That means if you're struggling with pornography, man, you got to do something about it. you got to get covenant eyes. you got to have an accountability partner where they're going to see every single website that you ever visit. You've got to get it on your phone. You've got to get it on your computer. And if you're smart, like one of my friends that I'm holding accountable right now, and he's learned a way to rig his way around covenant eyes, we say, well, you can't have your computer anymore, and you got to get a flip phone. This is the levity, the, the, the way that we're supposed to treat this. Practically, flee it, avoid it. Put filters on your TV like I do. I found out a couple years ago that sometimes we get free channels on our TV, and some of them aren't the best channels. And so I asked Brenda, I said, punch in a code on this filter thing so I won't be tempted to watch it, because I promise I will. I'll be tempted to watch it. If, if I know it's there, just put a filter on it. So we put filters on things. Couples that are dating, you guys need to set your boundaries and stick to them. Decide beforehand, we are not going beyond this limit, and this is it. And if you have trouble at someone's house, then don't go to that house anymore. If you have trouble staying up past this hour, set another curfew and stop it. Someone at your office who's already staying, avoid it. If you're married and you've got someone at your office who's attracted to you or maybe you're attracted to them, avoid them. Don't talk to them. Find a way to go away from them. I remember I was at the gym a couple years ago and I was actually reading a Bible commentary on the bike and I put the Bible commentary kind of like in a little cubby hole and went and did my workout. When I got back, there was a note from a woman that had her name and her phone number on my Bible commentary. And so I threw it away as fast as I could because I'm like, I don't even want to, I don't want to know her name. I don't want to even have a chance of remembering that phone number. And I, go, and I drove home and I told Brenda right away, avoid sexual immorality. And don't date unbelievers. Don't date people who aren't going to share your conviction. First of all, in your faith, let alone those who are going to have a very different view of, of sexuality than the one we're describing here today. Why would you do that? Don't put yourself in that position. Avoid sexual immorality means avoid it. Do whatever you can do to set up boundaries. 
no matter how legalistic or strange they, they sound. My wife's a flight attendant, so she's gone several nights every week. And I know I've got a group of friends that every time she's gone, I let them know when, they're, when she's gone because I know the days that I'm going to be most tempted are when she's not there. And I have the house to myself. And so I text Jake and I text a few other people every single time. Brenda's going to be gone these next two days. Help me. Pray for me. This is avoiding. What I love, though, is Paul doesn't just stop with avoid because avoid's like just run away, pretend it's not there. That's one strategy. Yes, he says to do that. But he also says proactively you can learn to do something about it which is the next command. Learn to control your body. He says, it's God's will that you should learn to control your body, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. He's saying there's, don't get caught up on that word heathen or pagan, whatever your translation, that just is our word for like not Christian. He's saying those who aren't following Jesus, they've got a whole different sexual ethic and they're driven by their passions and they do whatever their body tells them to do because they don't have the power within them to say no. But what Paul says again and again in all of his books is we've been given the Holy Spirit's power. And just as in justification we are freed from the consequences of sin, we are also freed at the same time from the dominion of sin. Sin no longer has to have rule in our lives. And so not only can we just avoid something, we can actually learn to control it and learn to present our bodies to God again more and more and more. There's a way to submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit again, writing to his favorite disciple Timothy in Second Timothy 1. He said, God didn't give you a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of love and power and self-control. We have a Holy Spirit that can give us self-control. Self-control. Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We have a Holy Spirit that gives us power to live our lives differently than the world, to live our lives differently than we did last month, last week. That's the power that resides within us. And Paul's saying, you guys can learn to control your bodies. Just to see it in a few more scriptures, I love the way it's worded in in Colossians chapter 3. It says, since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. There's the glorification. But now in sanctification, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the ways you used to live. He's saying you've got new power within you. You can actually put to death the things that were in you and live a new life in Christ. Or most famously, In Romans chapter 6, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of yourself to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. Offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under law. You're under grace. This is what I want you to hear. You can be free. You can. You can grow. And this is what I love, the word that he says even here, learn to. What does that imply? You don't get it right away. You learn to. You progress in this area of your life. You learn to give yourself more and more to God and present yourself to him. This is what he's calling us to do, not just to avoid, but to learn to control our own bodies. 
There's a third commandment. And this is also the second motive. I said the number one motive was pleasing God. This one is the second motive. And it's the command is to not wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. When it says wrong, the, the kind of Greek understanding of that word wronging is the overstep boundaries. There's boundaries that we should have as we relate to one another as brothers and sisters. And you can cross those boundaries. And when you cross those boundaries, you've hurt someone, you've wronged them. The word take advantage is to use for your own benefit. To use for your own benefit. There's ways that we can relate to one another where we start using someone for our selfish gain. And that's what happens in sexual immorality most often. And so what Paul's saying here is pretty simple. You know what the Christian sex, sex ethic is? It's the great commandment. It, it's pretty much as simple as love others as you would have them love you. It's the great commandment. That's how we're to treat one another as a body here at Midtown. We're supposed to care so much about each other that we would never cross those bounds. We would never wrong someone. We'd never take advantage of someone and use them for our gain. But we would so love marriage and want to cultivate a community of Christians that say, we're going to treat this seriously and honor one another. One motive, another motive besides pleasing God is we just don't want to hurt each other. You may have heard like the whole idea that you prove you love someone by having sex with them. You don't. In the Christian worldview, you prove that you love someone by respecting their body and not overstepping these bounds. That's true love. That's biblical love. That's the standard that Paul was calling the Thessalonians to. It's a standard that God is calling us to. I just want to make two quick side notes. One is you're not married till you're married. Because I've seen it too many times when people, they say, well, we're going to get married, or I'm sure we're going to get married. And somehow what happens, we kind of psychologically convince ourselves that we're really kind of married in spirit, and you're not. You're not married until you're married. Even this last year, it's not anyone within this church, but, but within this last year, someone came and confided uh, with Brenda that she had been sleeping with her boyfriend, but they were sure that they were going to get married. A couple of months later, they broke up. She's heartbroken. He's heartbroken. This happens so often. You've got to remember, you're not married until you're married. If I can take another side note to talk briefly about pornography when it comes to taking advantage. People will tell you that pornography is, is not hurting anyone. You're so wrong. Pornography is hurting everyone involved. It's not a victimless crime. These women or men, for that matter, that are in pornography, it's devastating. One of the most powerful things, when I mentioned that power of porn presentation that we did at UT, uh, that the power of it really was actually the female part. There's one guy that gets up and he presents, you know, just from a, a really great perspective why porn is harmful and kind of through his own testimony. But the most powerful part is then they would always, the outreach would always bring a woman who was part of the porn industry. And to hear her tell her testimony and tell her story about how damaging and what got her to the place where she was, it radically changes all these, particularly these men's perspectives to actually take the human part of this dehumanizing thing that we participate in and put a human in front of you to change your perspective. Now, it might not be with our brothers and sisters because we look at them as like some person out in cyberspace, but the same is true. You're taking advantage, you're wronging someone. And not only that, you're actually really, really damaging yourself. This last week we had uh, the 
for our staff meeting, we actually went to go meet with a professional counselor just because we're just trying to grow in our own understanding and ability to counsel. And so we had this professional counselor talk to us about sexual addiction and how we can help people, among, among other things. One of the things he told us, he said the average age that men start looking at pornography is age 10. Um, nine or 10, he said. The average age that men get married now is 29. So take, you got about 20 years of what he called individualized sex. Think about that. You've trained your mind for individualized sex for 20 years, and then you hop into a marriage, and it causes a lot of problems because you don't know how to be with the person. You, you've, you've so trained your mind differently about sex. These are the consequences. So don't wrong or take advantage of people and understand that you're hurting yourself when you're caught in this trap. Which brings me actually to the, the worst part, in my opinion, of this um, passage. That last verse of uh, verse 6, the Lord will punish those who commit such sins as we told you before. I don't claim at all to understand exactly what this means. <clears throat> I don't know how this punishment happens. Um, I like the way that it's worded in, in Romans 1 a little bit better when in Romans 1, God just says he'll give you over to your own desires and the consequences that come from that. I'm sure that that's a major way that this punishment happens is just the consequences that we reap. But I know one thing, whatever consequences there are, God is merciful. God can redeem everything. And even if he does bring discipline upon us in some way, the way that I most often see it is break up a relationship that you thought you were going to get married in. Man, when he breaks that up, that can be the most merciful, kind thing that God can do. And I know some of you in here, and you would testify that that's a true story. However this has played out, I don't exactly know. But it should cause us to have this third motive. The first motive is to please God. The second motive is to not harm each other. The third motive is there are consequences. And we don't want those. That's what Paul's presenting to his people. I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but I want to just finish with these last two verses before I encourage us a little bit. The last two verses really just reiterate something that Paul's already said. He says, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. That's, again, the sanctification. Ultimately, what God wants is us to live a holy life with our sexuality, holy before him, devoted to him, presenting our bodies to him. And then he goes on to say this again, like he said in verse 2, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. You see this time and time again in Thessalonians, if you've been tracking with us, um, one of the things that Paul always praised them for was you guys receive the word of God, not just as the word of man, but the word of God. Remember that in chapter one? He says it again in chapter two. So you've got two times Paul's praising them that among the Thessalonian church, when they heard the word of God, they didn't think it was just Paul's opinion. They said, this is the word of God. He's encouraging them again with that same truth. That if you reject this, if you want to live by your own sexual ethic or you want to come to your own conclusions, you're rejecting God, not man's opinion. And so really there was the two choices, right? We started with live to please God or you can reject God and what he believes, what he tells us is right for us sexually, what's in our best interest and for his glory. And not only that, you reject the very spirit that's giving you the power to live this life. You see how that ended there? You reject God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So God's not only just telling you how to live. He's giving you the power to do it. He's saying, here, you can do this. I'm going to empower you. We can learn this together. We can grow and radically see our lives changed 
I'm giving it to you. Don't reject it. I want to close. I think that's faithful to the passage. But pastorally speaking, I want to just remind us of the mercy and forgiveness that we have in Christ. One of my favorite verses, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. It's wonderful. James 2, that mercy triumphs over judgment. And when I feel condemned in my sexual sin and and troubles, my favorite thing is to to go to John chapter 8 and read about the woman caught in adultery. And just to picture Jesus just on the ground, taking whatever he's writing, taking attention off of her, saying, hey, you guys who haven't sinned, why don't you cast the first stone? And to be reminded that we're all in that same boat. We're all right there. Everyone leaves. And I love the way Jesus just pulls her aside and says, hey, who's here to condemn you? No one's here. But go and sin no more. That's the mystery of the gospel that even John 1 says that Jesus was full of great, pure lives sexually. We can be truthful as a church at Midtown about how we want to live pure lives sexually. We can be full of grace and forgiving each other and knowing that God has such great forgiveness and God can restore all relationships and every past experience or hurt that you have. He can redeem it. I've seen it. Seen it. God redeems our sins and makes them for our good. In fact, (laughs) that's ultimately what happened at the cross that we're going to celebrate as we have this communion meal together. That's ultimately what we we celebrate, that our debts have been completely forgiven. And the thing that looked like the very worst thing in the world, the judgment of Christ, was actually the best thing in the world. And that's what God can do with every sin of our life. He can redeem it, he can forgive us, and he can change us. And he already has, and he's been doing it, like I said, within our church already. Before we come take communion, I did want to put, I think we have a slide of some of our emails that are up here. Uh, We felt like maybe this message in particular, you might want to contact one of the pastors, and all of us would would love to meet with you. So if you need to jot down an email or something like that, we'd love to talk with you this week, um, however however you feel led to respond. If you want, on your uh, comment cards when you turn them in, your um, connection cards, we just thought one way that you might indicate it if you want to anonymously indicate some need, if you can just draw a star. Sorry if someone actually drew, drew a star on accident. But uh, draw a star just on your card, and that will be an indication that we'll initiate with you. We'll contact you. Uh, but feel free to contact us as well. I think a wonderful way as the worship team comes forward for us to, to celebrate is just to, to, to press into that picture of Jesus on his knees with that woman reminding us that there's no one to condemn us and that mercy triumphs over judgment and celebrate the forgiveness that he's offered us as we take at the table here. Kind of logistically, if you can kind of come down this way and, and circle back on your seats or if you've got them in the back, you can kind of go down the inside rows and out the back. There should be a room for two rows. Um, and let's worship. These are going to be great songs for us to sing and respond and engage our hearts with the mercy of our God. We thank you for your mercy. We ask that it would be very, very fresh on us.
very, very fresh this morning as we worship. Thank you for being a God that does not condemn, a God that, that redeems and is even so kind to give us this instruction for your glory and for our good. Thanks for looking out for us individually, for caring so much about our marriages, for caring so much about your bride. I ask, Lord, that this week as we take this topic on again next week, that you'd be doing a real sanctifying, to use that word, sanctifying work in the life of our church, as you already have been doing. Do so more and more. In Jesus' name.